Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. The date is the winter of 1818. The place, New York City. You are about to meet Molly Williams, the first black person and the first woman to be a firefighter. This is a story of discrimination and heroism. I belongs to old Levin. I always run with that old bulgin. Molly Williams has been quoted, but that doesn't come close to her story. Gathering information about Molly is difficult. Researching the truth is near impossible as her legend has grown with rumor, tall tales, and misinformation. This is about as close to the truth as one can get. There's no known date for Molly's birth. The births and deaths of black people and other people of color were not officially recorded unless it was in a family record such as a Bible at this time. Little is known of her childhood, except she was born into slavery. We know she later married a man named Peter, and they had one child, Peter Jr. Later, as an adult, Peter Jr. would become a priest and an abolitionist. In his oral history, The Story of the Volunteer Fire Department of the City of New York, author George W. Sheldon wrote that Molly was the slave of a wealthy, prominent man named John Amar. John Amar had two sons named William and Benjamin. Benjamin Amar was the founder of the Mercantile House of Amar and Company. The company ran clipper ships trading goods to include brandy, port, mahogany, and coffee from the port in New York to California. Thus, Benjamin was a wealthy businessman, and he is listed as the owner of Molly and Peter on some records. Either Molly and Peter were sold to John's son, Benjamin, or Mr. Sheldon got his names crossed, or somehow in history, the names and the owners and Molly and Peter's names were crossed. In about 1783, Peter had bought his family's freedom from the Amars. Still, a black family had to survive, so Peter sold the Williams family to Wesley Chapel, becoming indentured servants. Wesley Chapel was the first incarnation of the John Street United Methodist Church in Manhattan's financial district. The chapel purchased Peter and Molly for 40 pounds sterling. The married couple lived in the church basement. Peter works as the sexton, which means he maintains the buildings, he cleans, he repairs, and he also dug graves when needed. Molly was the cooker and the cleaner. Later, Peter would open his own shop. It was a tobacco shop. And they would have little Peter Jr. Eventually, Peter would purchase their total freedom. Meanwhile, Benjamin Amar served as the principal in his family business, Amar and Company. Now, he lives in this stately home, and the address is 42 Greenwich Street. He's married, and he has eight children, and of course, with their servants, 
Amar served as a volunteer in New York City Firefighting Corps. He was stationed at engine number 11, which was in lower Manhattan, not far from where Zuccotti Park is today. It held some clout being in this fire station as a firefighting corps, but it was a boys club. It was basically a man cave before the term was ever coined, and volunteering was not totally altruistic. The volunteers were men who had the most to lose, lest a tiny spark hit the old wood and flammable merchandise in the warehouses. The rich, like the Elmars, owned those warehouses and everything in them. One little flame could quickly become a raging fire, and everything they owned lost in less than an hour if a fire struck. An 1800s firefighter was also a businessman protecting his interests, but if the company failed to reach the fire, it wasn't for trying. The mid-19th century meant gas lighting. There was little training and little scientific knowledge of how a fire works. Still, it was better than the bucket brigades in the 1820s, where people just lined up, formed a line to pass buckets of this slopping, sloshing water, one to another to just toss on the fire, grab the next bucket, toss that on the fire. But heavy equipment had to be dragged through the streets still, and with a heavy snow, the weight of the equipment felt more than twice the load. This is, by the way, New York. Think how it snows up there during the winter. It was tough work for hard men, and they developed this bond. They would create insignias for each station and considered brawn and stamina a measuring stick. A blacksmith named Patrick Lyon of Philadelphia had turned inventor after a short stint in jail. Patrick was clever and observant, and he sets to work on building firefighting equipment. In 1800, he patented the most powerful hand-pumped engine in the United States. Firefighters referred to it as a bull engine. It was a flat-topped wagon carrying this very short cylinder, and behind this cylinder was this piece that kind of resembled a podium. Metal pipes and hoses connected the two, and there was a box under the wagon. In 1804, Patrick built the first hose wagon. On a side note, we can thank the first bank robbery for the newest firefighting equipment via Patrick, but we'll do more on that in another podcast. And now that we have the scene, we welcome back Molly Williams. She now works at Engine Company 11 in Lower Manhattan, the same firehouse as Benjamin Amar. And there's some confusion as to what brings Molly to Engine Company 11. One story has it, Benjamin was not going to give up his luxury lifestyle even while volunteering. After all, none of the firemen laddies, as they were called in this fraternity, were being paid to be firefighters. So Benjamin brought his slave, Molly Williams, to wait on him. But at the time, Molly was most likely not enslaved. That she worked at the station. She cooked and she cleaned for the laddies, keeping the station and the equipment clean and neat. She was also known as being a very good baker. Now, keeping that equipment clean and neat would include a heavy, hand-pulled water pumper known around the station as a bull engine, the same model as that invented by Patrick Lyon of Philadelphia. And then came the day of the blinding snowstorm in 1818, 
when Molly Williams stepped from the firehouse into history. Two things made Molly a name in history that day. The snow was piling waist-high outside in some places, knee-deep in the streets, and showed no signs of slacking. If you look out the window, you can see the snow just caking against the window. It's falling and falling. It's thick and hard and fast as the snow can fall. It's piling up against the buildings. People who dare go outside are shrugging against the cold winds, holding their coats against their throats, just at a 45-degree angle, just digging in, trying to walk through these snow drifts that sometimes come up to their shoulders, sometimes come up to their hips. It is cold outside. And at the fire station, Engine Company 11, almost every man lay coughing these deep, sickening coughs, noses and eyes running, curled up and shivering in beds. What little food Molly could spoon to their lips would just be spit right back up. It was a group of miserable, sick men. Molly Williams is rushing about. The sleeves of her calico dress are pushed up to her elbows, her checkered apron dotted with stains, and her familiar bandana handkerchiefs keeping her hair away from a sweating brow. It's remembered that Molly always kept a clean bandana handkerchief neatly folded over her breast, but now it most likely drooped, filthy from use as she wiped the brows and mouths of men too sick, too weak to even move. And then, the alarm bell. Fire! Fire on William Street! Memories and lore collide here. Either Molly took up the drag ropes of a hand-pulled water pumper, or she was one of a few people taking up the rope. Nonetheless, she grabbed hold of the rope and, squaring her shoulders, feet slipping in the snow, the water pumper started with a jolt, then a rocking motion, and slowly, creaking, began rolling out of the station and down the road. As people ran from the fire, Molly strained and grunted toward the flames, rope burning against her shoulders, muscles developed from years of hard work flexing, flexing against that rope. There is no record of what happened at that fire, but there are stories about what happened with Molly. Her work this day earned her accolades. Because she was black and a female, she could not become an official member, so the men of Engine Company 11 declared her an unofficial member of their team. Molly Williams became volunteer number 11. Author historian Jay Lowe wonders if her service, quote, was offered in good nature or out of fear or out of necessity. The writer is unsure if this was the first and last time Molly grabbed a rope to assist. Lowe later adds, it's a fair guess that she didn't do this out of goodwill alone. End quote. Still, Molly Williams is the first female and the first black person to serve on a fire department. There is one known photo of Molly, and it is in the uniform. She is wearing double-breasted jacket and slacks with matching tie. Her man's shirt is as white as her gloves. The firefighter's flat-top cap sits staunchly on her head, and her smile is straight, with dark eyes gleaming into the camera. A period drawing exists of Molly, covered from head to toe, dragging that bull engine through deep snow towards the William Street fire. 
Molly Williams died three years after the fire. She was 74. Part of her amazing story is that she was 71 years old when that fire bell rang that day, that she grabbed the water pumper's rope to drag it through the knee-deep snow in New York City frigid winter storm. Molly Williams is not just a black person, a freed slave, a woman, or a volunteer. She is all these things, and she's a hero deserving recognition. Hey listeners, this is Judith A. Yates reminding you that it is getting cold outside. And while you're inside staying warm, your pets should be warm too. Even if it's just the garage or in the barn, get your pets some hay or straw to curl up in to stay warm. You should keep your cats and dogs inside when the temperature falls below 40 degrees outside, even dogs with thick fur. Antifreeze is a deadly poison. It has a sweet taste that attracts animals, so be sure and clean up any spilled antifreeze. Check your car's hood before starting the car. Either bang on the hood or honk your horn, because cats and small animals will crawl up in the engine space to stay warm, and you don't want to start your engine with an animal in there. Clean off paws if you suspect your dogs or your cats have walked through rock salt because they'll lick their feet and that rock salt in their system is not good. Cats should never be left outdoors, even if they roam outside during other seasons. Bring them in. And remember, a pet carrier is not a doghouse. If you need a doghouse and are having hard times financially, you can usually find them for free. Check Craigslist under the free listings. And you can usually find them if you keep your eye open. Always provide fresh drinking water in the winter. And for more information, go to www.aspca.org. Let's leave animal abusers out in the cold. Let's not leave the animals. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.